Good morning. Well, it's great to be here. What a wonderful time of worship, and uh, great to see Pastor Patrick. Uh, once again, I was here about 10 years ago, I think, and uh, so happy to be back. It's just wonderful to see the church filled up this morning, all these kids. I'm looking up there, I'm thinking, I can recruit all those kids for missions, you know? <laughs> if you parents will let them go, right? So the Lord is good. Wow, I got up this morning and it was pouring down rain. And then I went outside to come to church and it was sunny. That was pretty nice. I, I prefer the latter. So, praise God. What a, what a good-looking congregation you are today. Lots of young families with those young kids up here. That's just great to see and I'm uh, excited for you and what the Lord has done and what the Lord has in store for you. Let's stand and I'd like to pray that the Lord will help us in these moments that we have together. God, I thank you that uh, for your faithfulness I see here at this local church. After being here, after not being here for a 10-year span and then seeing the people and the life and the smiles and the warmth and just feeling that here in this church. I'm thankful for that. You are faithful. I can see your faithfulness over that span of time. I thank you, Lord, for the way you have raised this local church up to be a supporter of missions around the world, to support your mission, the mission of God. I thank you for that. I thank you for this opportunity I have to spend these few moments together with this church family today. I pray that it would not be wasted. I pray that you would work through me and the words that I speak this morning, that they would not be words from my mouth to people's ears, but from the heart of God to our hearts. We ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Uh, I'm sorry that both times I've been here, my wife has not been with me. She's packing up for a trip to Nepal with our daughter who works for Convoy of Hope, and I'm leaving tonight for Turkey. So we kind of, you know, go on separate ways here for a week or two. But she's a lovely lady. I met her at the altar the night I got saved. That's a pretty good deal, right? So I was raised Old Order Amish in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So horse and buggy, you know, no electricity, no telephone, no TV, no radio, except my dad wasn't a very good Amishman, so he had a few of those things on the sly from time to time. Uh, <clears throat> but <clears throat> when I was 17 years old, there was an Assemblies of God evangelist came to our town to do, uh, to do a camp meeting for the Mennonites. Think about that for a little bit. I don't think they knew what they were doing because in that camp meeting, a lot of Mennonites got baptized in the Holy Spirit and they got excommunicated from their church. 
So they formed this little group called New Life Fellowship, and they invited this Assemblies of God pastor from Texas to come back and start a church for them, which he did. Started with a 13-week revival, 13 weeks every night. And about halfway through there, December 10th, 1971, I went to that revival meeting and gave my heart to Jesus. I had never heard of Pentecostals. I had never seen one. I never, I didn't know anything about Pentecostalism, but I know that when I went to the altar, all these people gathered around and they were praying for me. You ever been to a revival meeting like that? So they were all laying hands on me because I was giving my heart to Jesus. And some of them were saying, let go. And others were saying, hold on. And I was like, what is going on? I didn't know anything about, you know, I'd been just never been to a meeting like that. I thought the preacher was mad at people because he was shouting and spitting and sweating and walking up and down the aisle and pointing his finger at them. Man, what have they done to make him so angry? But the Lord got a hold of me. But when I was praying through, uh, when I finished praying, I got up, turned around to go to my seat, and standing right there in front of me was the young lady that is now my wife, Pat. And when I saw her, it was like, I think I was praying. And I turned around, and there she was. And my mind went from heavenly things to earthly things, like that, you know. <laughs> and so I was, uh, I asked around a bit. That was a Friday night. I asked around a bit, and by the time Sunday night came around, I had gotten up the courage to call her and ask her if I could take her to church that night. And so that was, uh, we just celebrated our 45th anniversary, so been a good run. <laughs> I wish you could meet Pat. She's a lovely lady. <clears throat> we, um, we first went into missions 25 years ago. I'd been a pastor, and every time we had a missionary speaker, I would put my head on the pulpit and say, God, why can't I do that? And... Uh, after a few years, the Lord opened the door, and we've, we've been serving in missions ever since that. We served in Austria, in Moscow, in Tallinn, and uh, in the last 12 years, we've been in Springfield. And that's a cross-cultural experience in itself. You know, we, when you live in the Midwest, you have to learn a new culture. You've got to learn a new language. You've got to learn how to call everybody honey, you know. <laughs> Everybody's, everybody calls me honey. I go to Lowe's and they say, thank you, honey. I go, I'm not your honey. My honey's at home. Everybody gets called honey and sweetie. You know, it's like, you don't do that in New York, right? No. Last words have always fascinated people. Perhaps they hold an echo of wisdom or a biting witticism or maybe at least a clue about what's going to be left to me in the will. Bob Marley, rock musician, said his last words, money can't buy life. Queen Elizabeth said, I would give all I possess for another moment. 
Leonardo da Vinci said, I've offended God and man because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Well, I don't think so. Augustus Caesar, the first Roman Empire, said, I found a Rome of clay. I leave it to you of marble. John Adams was the second president of the United States. Jefferson was the third. They were bitter political rivals. Until later in life, they became good friends. And when John Adams died, he said, Thomas Jefferson survives. Those were his last words. What he didn't know is Thomas Jefferson had died two days before him. Two good friends. Jesus Christ's last words were, all authority in heaven is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you, and remember I am with you even to the end of the earth. You know, I had a Bible school teacher said, anytime you see therefore, you stop and ask, what is it therefore? So this therefore is there because we are commanded to go on the basis of the lordship of Jesus. See, one of the things about deciding to follow Jesus is I don't get to run my own life. Amen? You can never really say, no, Lord. It's an oxymoron. If you say no, you can't say Lord. If you're going to say Lord, you have to say yes. Are you with me? And so this whole thing is about the lordship of Jesus. Because all authority in heaven and earth is given to him, we are to go. Because of his lordship, we are called to go. So a look at the book of Acts. With the Holy Spirit crackling through their witness, those early Christians soon made a mark on Jerusalem. In fact, one of the accusations against them was that they had changed the world. Thousands came, were, thousands were added to the church over a period of time. Daily, New people were added to the church. What a dynamic place it was. But it's easy to read the book of Acts through a lens that sees obedience to Jesus. But there's another side to the story. By the time you get to Acts chapter 8, Stephen is stoned in 7. Acts chapter 8, the Bible says that persecution scattered the believers everywhere and they went as they went they preached the word of god well now look at this here we are all the way from the beginning of the book of acts to chapter 8 and all the believers and the apostles are still clustered in jerusalem so they had not obeyed the great commission so maybe the persecution that came well Maybe God had something to do with that. How many know that God is more 
concerned with our obedience than with our comfort? Well, that's a shock, isn't it? He is more concerned with our obedience than with our comfort. So could it be that Jesus had something to do with a persecution that then scattered the believers to the ends of the earth, taking the gospel as they went and planting the church everywhere? I think maybe. It's interesting to note when you, when you go through the book of Acts, <clears throat> Holy Spirit's poured out in the beginning. Jesus' commission at the, end, uh, at the end of Matthew. The Holy Spirit's poured out beginning of Acts. Acts chapter 8, persecution comes and scatters the believers. Acts chapter 13, 18 years after the Holy Spirit's poured out. Acts chapter 13, the church at Antioch gathered in prayer, fasting, laid their hands on Saul, on Barnabas and Saul, and sent them out. That's 18 years after the day of Pentecost. 18 years after the day of Pentecost is the first time the church, with intentionality and not under duress, sent out missionaries. So while we celebrate the great victories of the book of Acts, when you flip the coin over, you can also see a reticence to really obey the Great Commission. It took a little pressure from persecution. It took a Gentile church in Antioch where believers were first called Christians to really, for the first time, lay their hands on missionaries and send them out. Here we are 2,000 years later. There are now billions of people on the earth. 42% of the earth's population does not have adequate access to a gospel witness. A friend of mine just started uh, a ministry and a prayer focus and a foundation called Project 42. I said, why Project 42? He said, Omar, 42% of the world's population does not have an adequate witness of the gospel. Think about that. There are more than 7,000 unreached people groups in the world. An unreached people group is, a, is an eth- ethno-linguistic group of people that do not have a church, a Bible, or often a missionary. So they are not only lost, they're hopelessly lost. See, your, your neighbor down the street may be lost, but he's not hopelessly lost because you're here. But 42% of the world's population is hopelessly lost because they have no access to the gospel. So why do we talk about missions? Why did Jesus commission us? Because unless someone crosses cultural, geographic, linguistic boundaries and barriers to take the gospel to them, they will never hear. That's why you have a mission Sunday. That's why you send out a Kirsten Drake, 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 Drake. You got it. <clears throat> That's why you have Faith Promise Sunday. Because unless we do something, unless we go or send, 
Those 42% of the world's population are not just lost, they are hopelessly lost. Did you know that 80%, giving you some stats, let them sink in, 80% of all Hindus, Buddhists, and Muslims have never met a follower of Jesus. 80%. And when you get to the luncheon, or I think maybe from here too, we have some prayer maps. When you look at those prayer maps, you'll see the interesting thing, one of the interesting things about Eurasia is it is the birthplace of the world's, of the world's five predominant religions. It is the birthplace Judaism, Christianity, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Islam were all born out of the Eurasian soil. Never met a Christian. There are countries, there are entire countries in Eurasia without a church, a Bible, or a missionary. Other places where there's a handful of Christians, the church is too small and too weak to reach their own people without help from the outside. That's why we go. That's why we send. That's why we give. Country of Oman. We now have three church planting teams in Oman just in the last year or two. But uh, when we went there, we knew of five Christians in the entire country. No, no church meetings, no public gatherings of Christians. There are more Starbucks outlets in the capital city than there are Christians in the country. But we now in the last couple of years have been able to put three church planting teams in the country of Oman. Isn't that awesome? Praise God. One of them, we call them, we call them borderland team because they live in southern Oman on the border of Yemen. Yemen is a place right now where we, we can't send anybody because it's just simply not safe. But they are working on the border of Yemen, and the day that it becomes possible, they will cross the border and plant the church in Yemen. We have uh, a country of Qatar, very small country, highest per capita income in the world, Qatar. And yet, as of today, we know of two known Christians in the entire country. Well, thank God we have a missionary couple on the ground. Uh, He works for the Qatar State University, runs a biology lab on their university campus. And uh, he uh, he has someone else who's there with him now working together. And they are planting the church in Qatar. Isn't that amazing? A couple years ago, there was only one Christian. And he won somebody else, and there's two. That may seem small, but that's 100% church growth overnight. You couldn't fit them in here if you had 100% church growth overnight. So everything's relative, isn't it? It all depends on the context. But uh, so, so we are planting the church in Qatar. The, country of, uh, the island country of Maldives, there are no known Christians. No known Christians. For five years... 
We've been sending, we've been sending prayer teams. Uh, Dwayne and Laurie Danielson have been leading that effort. We take prayer teams in, and we pray and walk the streets. And in doing so, we discovered the history uh, of Islam in the Maldives, and we discovered that a man, one single man, one merchant from North Africa who was a Muslim, went to the Maldives and won the entire nation, turned the entire nation to Islam. And our hope is, our hope is that we can see God do something and turn the entire nation back to Jesus. That's what Eurasia is. That, I'm describing to you what Eurasia is like. Some of the most difficult to access, hard to stay in, dangerous, gospel-resistant places in the world. And yet I want to celebrate and let you know that Jesus has raised up 650 missionaries just for the Assemblies of God working in Eurasia today. We are so thankful for that. So we thank God that he's, uh, he cares about these people. He cares about these places. 2,500 unreached people groups in India alone. 2,005. Many of them in the mountains. Many of them in the, in the uh, Himalaya region. And by God's grace, we're sending church planting teams to plant the church and preach the gospel where it hasn't been preached before. Yet Eurasia, when I talk about those needs, countries, entire countries without a Christian, without a missionary, without a Bible, entire countries. Yet it's such a place of contrast because on the other hand, we have some of the strongest national churches in the world. We have the Indian Assemblies of God, for example, that has about 11,000 local churches. And they are, they are growing, they're training ministers, they're planting churches, but it's mostly in the South. But that church was started by Assemblies of God missionaries 100 years ago. Today there's 11,000 churches, 100,000 believers. The Slavic church, you know some about the Slavic church because I know that a Slavic church was born out of here and out of your gymnasium and another one meets here. The Slavic church is a powerful, robust, growing, Holy Spirit-filled church. They're planting churches and growing and doing amazing things. And yet in their shadows, you have the North Caucasus where you have entire, uh, you have, you have entire uh, uh, people groups that have no witness, no gospel, hostile, violent. We have a church planting team living down there and working among those people. Pray for them. So some places we have amazing growing national churches and other places we have no believers. So we have to keep praying. We have to keep going. We have to keep sending. We're seeing first fruits in some places. I mean, I'm glad this is not live stream because I couldn't tell you this story if it was. But we have a missionary who spent 40, 44 years in the country of Israel, working primarily now in the West Bank. About 10 years ago, or a little bit more, he met a young man and he won him to Jesus and discipled him. This guy was such a dedicated Muslim that he could recite the entire Quran, which is about like the New Testament. He could recite the entire Quran. He came to Jesus, and he became as passionate about Jesus as he was about Islam. 
And he started winning people to Jesus on the West Bank. Now, this is like very, very dangerous place. So he's winning people to Jesus, and they're winning others to Jesus and winning others to Jesus until today it's an amazing, amazing uh, movement with, uh, with about 10,000 house churches. There's not a village or a town on the West Bank that does not have one of these houses. They call themselves the Jesus people, the Isawi. So when they grow to eight people, because it's, so, so, it's such a security risk, when they grow, they have no buildings. They don't have stained glass windows or buildings or anything. You, can, you can't meet publicly. So it's a house church movement. And every time they grow to eight people, they multiply and start another house church movement. That's why there are thousands of them. And they can't meet publicly. So what they do, they describe themselves as hiding in plain sight. So they meet in the mosque. Their church services are in the mosque. Here's how it works. If you go into a mosque, it's kind of, I've been, I've been in them and seen them, how they operate. And you'll have, you'll go into a mosque and you'll have an imam sitting over here with a group of people around them and an imam over here and I'm over here. And they'll have like, like little Sunday school classes, if you will. That's using our language. And people sit around the feet of the teacher and he's instructing and teaching. And so uh, that goes on all over the mosque. And so what the Isawi do is they just go into one corner of the mosque and they have a Jesus meeting. So they're having church in the mosque. Okay, so they told me this. They said, in, on the West Bank, a lot of people, there's a lot of poverty, so people don't have showers in their house, right? So what they do is they have public showers in the mosque. So what the Sawi do is they go in and have their Jesus meetings, then they go in the shower and baptize their people in the mosque shower. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? <clears throat> so I hope you caught it. I, there are thousands of these groups. There's not a city, not a town, not a village in the West Bank where the Isawi people have not taken root. In fact, I heard recently, I was just told by the, the missionaries working with them, that recently they have, begun, they have begun winning Jewish people to Jesus. So isn't that, a, isn't that a reverse? So you got Muslims coming to Jesus and then winning Jewish people to Jesus. It's an incredible move of God. Powerful, powerful move of God. You know what you have to do to join the group? I don't think I wrote it down here, but I think I can remember it. You have to be saved. That makes sense, doesn't it? You have to be water baptized. You have to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. You have to tell your family about it. And we've had lots of martyrdoms. People are killed. Their businesses burned. Their spouses put them out. Their families disowned them. But that's part of identifying with the body of Christ, and they're willing to do it. And number four, you have to do something for the poor. So Ross was telling me that, uh, okay, so you do something for the poor. So he said he, he had a pretty nice coat that he, uh, a warm winter coat, and it gets cold there. So he gave it to one of these uh, house church leaders. And then he said uh, he found out that that house church leader gave it to another one, and then he gave it to another one. So everybody was doing something for the poor with the same coat. 
Isn't that awesome? I love that. I love that story. But those are first fruits. You go back 10 years and there was, there was nothing. There, there were no churches. There, there was nothing. So Global University and, and BGMC and Light for the Lost is helping us. And we're putting a tablet with the scriptures and with leadership and Bible teaching lessons in the hands of every one of those house church leaders. We've given, we've given thousands and thousands of them away. We can't get Bibles in. They can't hide. But they can get a tablet because everybody has a device and they download. There's nothing on it when we give it to them. They download the materials. So they all have teaching materials in their hands. It, we, it's first fruits. It's, the be, it's beginning to see the church planted in some of the most difficult, hard to access, hard to stay in places in all of Eurasia. The Sawi, pray for them when you think about them. Ten years ago when I was here, the Lord just put in our heart to do what we call cutting the frontier. You'll see a magazine that talks about it when you, when you leave, I think. We had hundreds of missionaries working with established national churches in Eurasia, and yet there were all these places that had no church, no missionary, no Bible. So the Lord put it on my heart as leader of Eurasia to lead an effort to cut the frontier. And when we say cut the frontier, we talk about find those places where the gospel hasn't been preached and where the church doesn't exist. Find where light meets darkness and take another step beyond that. And I want to tell you today, I'm, I'm so thrilled about it. Today we have 59 church planting teams working beyond the frontier in places that are most difficult in the world to reach. And we're seeing first fruits. We have a church planting team in Tripoli, Libya. Very days. No government, basically. They, you know, if they want to fly out of the country, they often have to leave the country. And, and yet, uh, at Christmas time, these missionaries will put Jesus banners on the outside of their apartment. And they said, for the first time, Libyan young people are following Jesus. They're meeting together and trusting each other and having small house church meetings. First fruits. We're seeing breakthroughs. Keep praying for us. Keep sending us missionaries. Keep resourcing us. We can't do it. We can't do it without you. I want to talk a little bit about that. The Great Commission that Jesus gave was not just to a few people who are ordained or appointed. It's a good place for an amen. amen. The Great Commission is to every follower of Jesus. It can't be done if we just select a few and make it their job. The Great Commission belongs to every church, every denomination, every follower of Jesus. We cannot do it without you. 
it requires everyone to be all in if we're going to get it done. Amen? So I was reading along one day in the book of Acts, and I came to that place in verse 25 where it talks about Saul in Damascus teaching and sharing what God had done in his life. And the enemies of Saul, remember he had been killing Christians and then God arrested him on the Damascus road and spoke to him and gave him a commission to the Gentiles. Now Saul is in Damascus and he's meeting with other Christians and he's teaching and preaching. And his enemies find out he's there. Well, Damascus, still today, some of the old city remains. It's a city of alleys and narrow streets and walkways and you could easily hide there. So his enemies, I think, they knew he was in the city, but they assumed they couldn't find him, so they surrounded the city and waited for him to come out. The scripture says when his friends found out about it, they let him to the ground in a basket through a hole in the wall, and he escaped with his life. Apostle Paul's an interesting character. I did a little study on him recently to try to figure him out. And there's a document from the second or third century that described him. They said he was short, bow-legged, ball-headed, and had a unibrow with a hooked nose. Going like, man, what a beauty. You know, this is an old document. I guess I, you know, it's from the second century. So uh, he was an interesting guy, but he changed the world through his three missionary journey. He changed the world. I mean, he went out, planted churches everywhere he went, raised up Christians. He was beaten, and he talks about it. He was beaten and run out of town and shipwrecked, and he had. A, he was. He paid a huge price for it, but. He changed the world. He got the gospel to the Italians. C.M. Ward said, you get the gospel to the Italians, they'll take, you the rest, they'll take care of the rest of it. Any Italians in this building? Yeah, I thought maybe up here, yeah. So I, I've done a study on Paul. I know a little bit about him. He left us half the New Testament. He's, he's the ones, Barnabas and Saul, that took the gospel from being primarily a small Jewish sect to a world religion. I, I know Jesus did it, but that's thanks to the obedience of the man named Paul. We, we wouldn't, I mean, he changed the world. I know who Paul is. What I'd like to know is who were those rope holders that put him in a basket, lowered him to the ground through a hole in the wall, and saved his life because if they had not, the historical landscape may look different. Who are they? What were their names? 
Where did they work? What were their day jobs? We know nothing about them. One verse, Acts 9.25, one single reference to them. And yet it may be that history hung on that rope and basket in which they lowered Paul to the ground. Every time you see, every time you see a great story, there's a story behind it. Every time we celebrate a great victory, there's a story behind it. Always. So what I want to tell you today is, if we're going to get this job done, if we're going to be obedient to the Great Commission, if we're going to plant the church in 44 nations and territories in Eurasia, if we're going to make a mark on 4,000 unreached people groups in Eurasia, if we're going to reduce that number by sending missionaries and church planting teams, you're going to have to be involved. Because you can't handpick somebody like Kirsten and ordain them and appoint them and think they're going to get it done on their own. Because we're not. We're not. It takes everybody. It takes your faith missions pledge. It takes your prayers. It takes your giving. It takes your going. And maybe there's some other people in this building this morning that God's speaking to. You know, I was a pastor for a lot of years in the United States, and God was dealing with my heart for missions, and I, I didn't know what to do with it. My heart was saying yes, but I didn't know what to do. But I think there are other people here today in a crowd this size, a church this size, that God's speaking to your hearts. And I encourage you to obey him, to follow him, to say yes. Just say yes. Say yes before he tells you where to go. Say yes before he tells you what to do. Just take a yes posture. And God can work through you in amazing ways. So who were those rope holders? They were the people like you. Professionals, homemakers, farmers, mechanics. They were rope holders. I read this story a while ago about a guy named Charlie Plum. Charlie, uh, Charlie was a fighter pilot, a, a jet fighter pilot in the Vietnam War. And he flew missions off of the Kitty Hawk. Uh, his 75th mission, he was shot down into enemy territory and was held captive in a Vietnamese prison for f- six years, I believe. And when he finally was let go, he came back to the States. And till today, he's a, he's a promotional speaker. He tells his story. He wants people, he wants to share lessons he learned from that experience with his audiences. And so that's what he does. One night, he gave a lecture in St. Louis. And 
afterwards went out to dinner with his wife and he was sitting at the table when a man came up to him and stuck out his hand and said, you're Charlie Plum. You flew fighter jets off the Kitty Hawk in the Vietnam War. Charlie looked at him and said, yes, I am. He said, how did you know? The man said, I packed your parachute. True story. And he smiled and said, I guess it worked. Charlie said, yeah, it did. I wouldn't be here. If it, wasn't, if it hadn't worked, I wouldn't be here today. Well, they chatted a bit and went their own way. And Charlie said that night he went back to his room, laid down on his bed, and he couldn't sleep. He's thinking about that sailor. He said, I wondered how many times I might have passed him in a hallway or on the deck in his bib overalls and sailor uniform and never said hi, never said good morning, never acknowledged him because he said, see, I was a fighter pilot. He was just a sailor. He said, I wondered how many hours he spent down in the belly of that ship at a table folding those silks so that when a moment like my moment came, I could survive. He said, I never recognized him. So I told that story at a church, Evangel Temple in Columbus, Georgia. And I, I didn't realize, but Fort Benning is right there. So there was a lot of like people from Fort Benning who were in the audience. And after the service, a man came up to me. His name was, uh, his name was Tim. He came up to me, and he had tears coming down his face. And he said, Omar, he said, I served on the Kitty Hawk. They just retired her last year. And I'm like, man, a real, here's a real guy. So I said, I want to hear your story. So after a while, we kind of got off the side, and he told me his story. He told me when the Kitty Hawk was fully staffed, there were 5,000 men and women on that ship. They had... 99 or 100 fighter jets and the pilots to fly them. Everybody else supported that. Think about that. 99 or 100 fighter, fighter jets and the pilots to fly them. Everybody else was cooking, cleaning floors, cleaning toilets, making beds, fixing airplanes, washing it. Everything else you can have five thousand people rope holders that's what they were they were rope holders then then there's another guy standing there and he's also from Fort Benning and he he was so he came up and he told me he said his title was command sergeant major senior enlisted non-commissioned officer U.S. Army Infantry School I'm like, man, when I get, when I grow up, I want a title like that, you know? That's what he did. So I said, what does that mean? He said, I train soldiers. And he said, this is at the heart of what we tell them. 
Your proximity to the objective is not relevant to your importance toward accomplishing the mission. All right, let that settle for a bit, right? So whether you're flying the jet or packing the parachute, one's as important as the other. Whether you're on the borderland team in Oman, on the Yemeni border, one of the most dangerous places in the world, Yemen, whether you are there on the ground or you're here in Greece Assembly of God and you have fully embraced your place in the Great Commission, here it is again. Your proximity to the objective is not relevant to your importance toward accomplishing the mission. So whether you're Paul in the basket or his friends with the rope, it's a contribution to the mission. So I want to tell you, I just want to tell you that you, your role and your place in the Great Commission is an important one. I, I talk to people sometimes and they feel like I'm not doing anything. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not contributing. I'm not making a difference. Listen, we understand that everybody can't go. Everybody can't go, but everybody can be involved. And my prayer is that as you have this Mission Sunday and as you look forward to the year ahead, make your faith promises this afternoon, and, and you, you decide who you're going to support and how much you're going to support, and you get your prayer list together and you're working on all that, my prayer is that through the power of the Holy Spirit, through what the Holy Spirit can do in our hearts, that he will let you know that in order to accomplish this mission, not only do we need fighter pilots, we need, not only do we need Apostle Paul, we need rope holders and parachute packers. And that you can be, by the grace of God, that you can be. One more Bible story, and I'll close. First Samuel 30. David is out fighting battles with some of his men. They return to the city of Ziklag, which is his hometown, to find that the Amalekites had raided the city, taken everything, women, children, cattle, everything. And David is distraught, and he goes to the Lord, and he gets a word from the Lord to pursue so he sets out with 600 of his best soldiers. He's going to get his, they took his own wives. He's going to get the women and the children and the cattle. He's going to get it back. He sets out. They had just come from battle, so they were weary. In the pursuit, they got to a place called the Basor Ravine. And some of his men were so weary they could not go on. So they decided that 200 of them would stay there and they would lighten the load and leave some of their, some of their baggage and ammunition and whatever. They would leave it with those 200. They would, they would lighten the load and go out, all out after the Amalekites. They did. They overcame them. They defeated them. They got everything back. 
all the cattle, all the, all the people, the family members, everything, got everything back. And they're returning and they come to the valley, uh, to the, to the Basor Ravine. And some of those 400 people who went to the front line, fought that battle to recover. They looked at those 200 who stayed behind and they said, nah, they don't get any of this. Because not only did they recover their own, but they took some booty from the Amalekites. They said, nah, they don't, they, they didn't, they didn't go to the front line. They don't get anything. It's one of the great stories in the Bible. One of the great responses in the Bible. One translation calls them wicked men. Another proud men. Those wicked men, those proud men said, no, no, we're, we're most important because we went to them. And David made this statement. It's a great statement. He said, the share of the one who goes down to the battle shall be the same as the share of the one who stays by the stuff. They shall share alike. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? So one day we stand before the throne of God. People from every tribe, nation, tongue, people, great multitude. Revelation 7 9, Revelation 9 9, giving Jesus the glory due his name. We'll all be there. I talk about those unreached people groups. Revelation 7 9 says they're going to be represented there. We'll all be there. And it won't be like, you're the hero and you stayed behind and you did this and you that. No, we share and share like in that awesome victory. So whether you go, whether you stay, that's not the question. The question is, are you all in? That's the question. Are you all in? Are you holding a rope or packing a parachute or staying with the stuff? Are, are you all in? That's the question. And that's my prayer. My prayer is I, as I've had these few moments to spend with you, is you'll search your heart. Uh, that you'll, you'll have a sense of what is your place in getting this job done. What is your place? It'll be different from mine or from pastors or from Kirsten's or from Dwayne's. It'll be different. But what is your place? Is it those prayer cards on your refrigerator? Maybe you don't have resources to give, but you can pray. Maybe God's blessed you with amazing resources. I, God blesses people and puts resources in their hands so they can finance the kingdom of God. I could tell you story after story. There's a, there's a book called Gospel Patrons. Write it down. Google it. Pick it up. Gospel Patrons. It's the stories of people that God resourced. And they knew he resourced them to finance the work of God. It's amazing stories. I don't know what your place, but, but know your place. 
Don't be a bystander or a spectator. Be a participant. Whatever that means. Whatever that means. Lord, I thank you for Grace Assembly of God. Let's stand together as we pray. Would you join me standing? Thank you for Grace Assembly of God. Thank you for Pastor Patrick and the elders and deacons and others, staff, people that I don't know. I thank you, Lord, for this, uh, for this church. I, I thank you that there's life. It's a life-giving church. I, I know that when I walk in because I go to a lot of churches week after week and I know when I walk in a life-giving church and this is a life-giving church. And it's a great commission church and I just pray that you would continue to bless them, bless the leaders, keep their vision and their focus on what matters most. And I pray that uh, you would raise up missionaries, young people out of this church to go to some of those places I referred to this morning, Lord. I believe they're here. They're under the sound of my voice. They're like I was once in my life where I knew what you were saying to me, but I didn't know how to do it. Maybe I didn't have the courage to do it. I pray that you'd continue to raise up missionaries from this church to go to these places on the frontier. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We praise you. Let's just praise God. We praise you, Lord, for what you're doing in the world. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.